Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. Now, this week, I'm joined by the formidable Julie Bindle. And those of you who don't know Julie's work, well, Julie is an author, a journalist, a campaigner, and a survivor, and a world-leading expert on violence against women and girls. And Julie was also living in Leeds at the time that this case was unfolding, And she has a personal experience that she will share with you about what happened one night when she was walking back from the pub the day before Jacqueline Hill was killed. Now, Julie talks about what happened that night, as well as what was going on at the time whilst living in West Yorkshire, including the police response. And we discuss terminology, including prostitution versus sex worker. Some of you have asked me about that. And Julie and I really dig into how we prevent male violence and so much more. I think you're going to find this interview truly fascinating. And just to give a little bit more context about Julie's background, she's written extensively on rape, domestic violence, sexually motivated murder, prostitution and trafficking, child sexual exploitation and stalking. And she wrote the book, The Pimping of Prostitution, Abolishing the Sex Work Myth. So she really is a world-renowned expert on this subject and in particular violence against women. So without further ado, here's my interview with the incredible Julie Bindle. I'm Julie Bindle. I'm a journalist, an author and a feminist campaigner. Excellent. Thank you, Julie. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Um, Can you tell me the connection that you have to the murders, what was happening in Yorkshire and Manchester back in the the 60s, 70s and 80s? Well, my connection to, to any of this is that as a young woman growing up in the northeast of England, in a very working class community, we were told very clearly that there was danger afoot for girls and women. And we were raised to take responsibility for ourselves and almost for what men might choose to do to us or plan on doing to us. And so in my case, I had um, an older brother who would have killed any boy that asked me out, let alone did anything more inappropriate. Um, And it was very old fashioned chauvinism, but but based on a sense of, I think, decency, um, despite it being uh, very difficult in the sense that our freedom was curtailed. And then as I was growing into my teens, so I was born in 1962, 
As I was in my early teens, of course, we heard about this madman and he was always depicted as a madman, a monster, a bogeyman that the press soon dubbed the Yorkshire who was killing prostitutes. This was their word, not mine, of course, in the north of England. And of course, we were close enough to the north of England to, to feel to feel that danger. And also, we had suspected, actually, I remember hearing my parents talk and their friends and other adults, that he was something like a police officer or a lorry driver or someone that could travel w without, without uh, causing any suspicion. By the time I moved to Leeds in 1979, I was 17 years old and I went looking for feminism. I didn't have much of a sense of the context of the of how this one lone man that the police couldn't catch was causing havoc and mayhem and terror. All I knew was that we were in danger, but in the back of my mind, I also was very aware that for girls and for women, the most dangerous place is in the home. On my very street, on the council estate that I was raised, there was a girl who was known to have been sexually abused from a very young age by her father. Four doors down was a woman who was constantly being taken to hospital after being battered by her husband. And of course, this was way before the police took domestic violence anywhere near seriously. And rape in marriage wasn't criminalised. We knew about the danger to women in the home. And yet we were told that that was where we were safe. And when I met the feminists in 1979, and it wasn't that long before I was caught, everything made sense. It was clear that this man hated women. It was clear that the police, up until killed a woman they decided wasn't in prostitution, was a good girl, that they hadn't really cared. It was the classic no human involved, the, the NHI uh, shorthand that would often be scrawled upon case files and that unfortunately to this day still is across Canada when missing and murdered Indigenous women where their cases are, are being investigated. And so the context I was given from feminism was that women were divided into deserving and undeserving victims. All women were blamed for what happens to us. But occasionally, a victim such as 16-year-old Jane MacDonald, who was seen as just totally blameless because of her age, because I think she was a middle-class girl, and because she hadn't been out drinking and she had no involvement in prostitution, that they were the good victims and that all the other women, whatever they had done, or in fact, whoever they were, so just if they were working class, were somehow culpable in what happened to them. And then there was a further light bulb moment for me, which was the media coverage, in particular in the Yorkshire Evening Post, where Sutcliffe's victims were described in the most horrific terms. We got to know things about them that couldn't possibly have any bearing on the investigation or on new leads or on giving the public information that we could then pass on to the police if we suspected something. For example, 
One of the women was described as having a Jamaican boyfriend. She was a white woman. And of course, that was a disgrace because everybody knows only slags are in mixed race relationships. Others who weren't in prostitution, but were having active sex lives, were seen as just prostitutes. And of course, we know this, don't we, when women are called whores, because we have any kind of consensual sexual activity that we dare enjoy. And then, of course, there was the issue about women being out on their own, whether it's to buy a package of cigarettes, whether it's to go to the pub for a drink. All of those women were to blame. And that was a real awakening for me. Yes, it's staggering, the the double standard. Of, of course, we're going back in time, but the double standard that we still see now in the way that women are characterised in the media. So this isn't dim, distant, in the past, never to be seen. You and I see it, as do our uh, colleagues in our network, and we challenge it every day in the media, the way that women are described that has no relevance and women can become footnotes in their own murders. And I think that part, for me, I mean, that's really fired me up to ensure that every woman is honoured in their death and we properly learn. And, and that's really why I'm deep diving and covering this case in particular. And language really matters. You're a writer, you're an author, and the tone that's set by the police and by the media can have a very profound impact, can't it, in terms of what happens next. And I, and I think it's very interesting that the police made a case back then and still now saying that actually the public weren't sympathetic about what was happening to the women being murdered. It was the public who weren't coming forward with information. What's your view on that, Julie, having lived through this at the time? Oh, the public were Yeah, them, them, the police bouncing it back and saying, actually, it's the public that weren't coming forward with information. And, and I've heard that even now from officers who lay that claim that that's why the investigation stalled at the beginning. And all I see is the headlines and the way that women were characterised at that time, the police setting a, a tone. And, you know, for example, one of the quotes from Jim Hobson, who was a senior officer who spoke out after Jane MacDonald was murdered. And he said, and I quote, the killer has made it clear he hates prostitutes. Many people do. We as a force will continue to arrest prostitutes but the is now killing innocent girls. Now that's his quote, and I'm not going to use the words because I know it creates huge distress to victims. So even that, the language calling him the Yorkshire R, I'm working with families now campaigning to get that scrubbed out going forward. And for future cases that media and others do not dub a killer with a moniker because it equally ups the ante and plays into their narcissism and the fact that they want the celebrity, and most oftentimes it's because really they're a no one and what they're seeking is notoriety. And so we give them that when we use these names. And right there, Jim Hobson did multiple things by saying, we hate prostitutes too. We will arrest them. I mean, that's insane. Why does he think that arresting prostitutes is going to stop a man from killing women? What are your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, about the public sympathy. Clearly, those that thought that women in prostitution are the scum of the earth, and that's mainly men, but some women latch on to this also, I think, to protect themselves as women who will be treated respectfully by men, not murdered by men. It's, it's, it's a false kind of safety net thing that women do. But, of course, the public was sympathetic. 
to the victims because apart from the fact that when we saw the photographs of the murdered women and there were mugshots, which is an abhorrence because what that does is instantly ends empathy and frames the victim as the problem, as a criminal. You know, these the, the, the general public in the main saw children left without a mother, saw loving families left without a daughter. Women in prostitution, of course, and their loved ones are members of the public. So many women in prostitution were in mourning throughout this whole reign of terror. And of course, how they were described was fed back at them and would have made them feel a hundred times worse. I have interviewed women who were in prostitution at the time, all of whom say they were dehumanized. Their lives were bad enough prior to this. And what they talk about in terms of the distress is the police attitude and the media depiction of them more than the danger of Sutcliffe. And I'll tell you why. Because women in prostitution, and I refuse to use the term sex worker, this is not about sex and it is not work. The inside of a woman's body is not a workplace. These women were used to fearing death every day. Every day they experience something horrendous. Just the act of prostitution itself is an abhorrence. And then, of course, the women thought that this punter who'd driven them to an industrial piece of wasteland, could kill her. That's always in women's minds. And they knew that the police looked at them with disdain, disgust, and at best total disregard for their safety and their lives. Police were asking for sexual favours from women. They were offering them safety in return for a blowjob. And the majority of people see these women as human beings. But what the police and the media coverage of this case did was it gave many more people permission to see these women as not human, worthless. So this really did set a very low bar in terms of the way that these women were viewed and treated. Now, one other interesting aspect about the public and about the public being absolutely determined to assist the police in any way that they could. I think most of the public knew that the police were messing up on a very, you know, kind of in, huge scale. It was 8,000 women, and this tells more than one story, 8,000 women during the investigation called the police and said, I think it's my husband. I think it's my colleague. I think it's my son. I think it's my neighbour. And this is because much of the general public knew on one level, that we weren't looking for a monster because actually we don't believe in, in such fantasy. We know that men, that human adult men kill and harm women on an industrial scale. So they knew they were looking for a man who could well be doing this but had covered up his crimes and, of course, he's living a normal life. Now, why? Why did those women think that? because of the horrendous scale of male violence towards women. Because those women knew they had been raped by their husband. He had tortured her, coercively controlled her, beaten her. She'd, she'd, she'd caught him sexually assaulting their daughter. 
she knew that he was going to the local brothels or crawling the streets and paying for sex. But these women knew that. And that's why they thought, you should have a look at him. So that tells us first that these women were willing to take the risk of reporting as a possible suspect someone that may well be dangerous to her and put her at risk. And secondly, that she actually thought, this could just be my John, Kevin, Malcolm. And, you know, the, the idea that, the idea that the, the police cared about these women at all, actually, I think is a stretch. Even when we get to the young women who weren't considered to be in prostitution, because remember, some of the women that were considered by the police to be in prostitution actually weren't. Some were, some weren't. So even those young women, I think, were just seen as an embarrassment, another symbol of failure for the police. Now, there will have been officers on that squad that went home sobbing and breaking their hearts because of these deaths. Of course there were. But the big bosses, the ones who got themselves into some kind of imaginary cockfight with who turned out to be a hoaxer, the man they called Jack, um, I don't think they cared about any of the women. I think that they had normalised the murders of women, femicide. I think that they were too used to the fact that Every week, a couple of dead bodies were dragged out of homes, killed by their partners or former partners. I think they were very used to knowing that rape was endemic and that these men rarely saw the inside of a, a police cell. And I don't think that they cared. I think they cared about a result, to take away the criticism and the embarrassment for them. Yes, you said some really interesting things there, Julie. I was nodding away to all of it. I mean, firstly, this and listening to some of the men at the time that were interviewed when they came up with his disturbed, his manic, um, he's got mania, he's frenzied. All these words to describe him were actually his crime scene said otherwise. The victims who survived said otherwise. They said he engaged them in conversation and that they felt disarmed by him, i.e. ordinary, polite voice, softly spoken. They didn't feel under threat. And women know, because we live it, we experience it. This isn't about monsters. This is about the people who eat at our tables, the men, yeah. and who we are in relationships with, who are much more likely to harm us. Mm -hmm. And that's why every major investigation, I always say, appeal to the woman who knows him. Yeah. Appeal to the mother, appeal to the girlfriend, appeal to the ex-partner. Do not appeal to him. He doesn't want to be caught. Yes. Now, in this case, they did everything effectively uh, the polar opposite of what the advice would be. And you could say, well, you may forgive that given that it was the 70s. Okay, so there's a huge learning curve. But I think some of the comments that George Oldfield made were quite staggering. And I just want to quote him because it really does uh, talk to what you just described, having lived through it. He said in 1979, there may be more pawns in this war before I catch you, but I will catch you. So right there, he's describing women as pawns. And like, this is a game. You called it as a, described it as a cockfight. That's how I saw it. This mm. became about a personal mm. him versus the killer. 
But of course, he was looking in all the wrong places. And the second quote, which literally had me floored, he said, I have no hard feelings towards him. I just want to catch him. What message does that send out to women? Well, first of all, um, what the police were doing and what Oldfield was clearly doing very, very wrong was rooted in his misogyny, in his absolute disdain um, of women particularly certain types of women. And I do think class is very relevant here. I think working class women were seen as much more disposable and and dirty and feckless and all the rest of it. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Well, Oldfield, when he... When he said those words, and I remember watching Kalinda TV in my flat in Leeds with my feminist friends, and we were going berserk, obviously. We remember saying, but we're the pawns. He's just, he's talking about us. He's talking about we're the pawns. We're collateral damage, for God's sake, in this fight. And, and what Oldfield did wrong was that he and his other senior officers thought they were looking for someone who hated quote, unquote, prostitutes. And they could justify that as a motive for his actions, as a motive for his murders. Imagine that they were able to do that, that there is such a man who almost has a logical response to prostituted women that then thinks that that's a motive. We all knew in my feminist group, we all knew that the motive was misogyny and hatred of women. And of course, we knew that he was a sadistic necrophiliac because although, interestingly, in those days, and we poured over the press and we have it all on archive now at the, at the, um, the feminist library in, in Leeds. Interestingly, the press didn't really tell us about the fact that he was raping women as they died and, in fact, after their death. There were hints about sexual assault. We knew that his motive was enjoying women's pain and death and then raping them as they died, which makes him a sadistic necrophiliac, which is not, as you know, um, a mental illness. It's not a, it's not a um, diagnosable mental what, what's how, how can I put it? It's not, unlike paranoid schizophrenia, for example, um, something that explains his makeup. This is something that he enjoyed doing. As we know, many men enjoy the idea of, or there wouldn't be such a huge demand 
for pornography that depicts necrophilia and um and strangulation to the point of you know of almost death etc so so while they were looking for a man who was out on a mission to clean up the streets we knew that they were looking for a misogynist whose actions were extreme of course they were extreme but that he had inevitably built up two from non-fatal attacks on women from sexual violence on prostituted women who of course were easy to access and much more vulnerable than were women outside of prostitution so these men practice on women in prostitution to see what they can get away with because otherwise it might be a 17-year-old girl whose father himself is a magistrate and knows how to pull the strings to say investigate this properly or you're in trouble so they they did everything wrong and the basis of all of their failings except for of course the problem that they had with record keeping and with non-computerized systems was misogyny Yes, and that motive is so important to understand the motive of hatred towards women. And I would imagine all women. It's just an accessibility issue, as you say. And so when I break down uh, offences and I look at what's happened, i.e. where did the offender and the victim interact with each other? What happened in that transaction? How much time was spent with a victim? The media would have you believe in this case that he was just approaching women, hitting them over the back of the head, using a hammer and a knife on them and then leaving. But actually, as you describe and what I have discovered through this deep dive and analysis, which is so different from what I was told when I was at New Scotland Yard, by the way, which I had to disregard everything I was told about the case because it doesn't fit with what I've been Mm -hmm. finding is that he engaged women. He talked to them, first of all. He put them at ease. Mm -hmm. He then attacked them when they least suspected it. Mm -hmm. He spent time with them at the crime scene. It wasn't just about killing them. It was about eviscerating them, and it was about sexually assaulting them. Sometimes masturbation, sometimes rape. That wasn't disclosed, and he was very calculated and very planned. And the time that he spent, he was meticulous with the things that he did. It was actually the opposite of frenzied Mm -hmm. attacks. Mm -hmm which is what the media and the police would have everyone believe. So they were looking for someone very different. He was ordinary in the sense that he could put women at ease and talk to them. And that's what Mo said when she turned around, saw this guy, he chatted to her like he was an old friend. And therefore you think, oh, I I can't see him, but I probably know him because he's being so friendly. Your guard therefore goes down. Mm -hmm. And it's that that is very important to understand. And women, of course, know this, but yet the men who were speaking out in the media and also the senior officers, men were characterizing his behavior and who he was so totally differently. And by the way, they gave him a defense. They gave him his defense that he was clearing up the streets because of what they were saying in the media, which is shocking. And I why I really want to have this conversation with you, because it's so important that people don't get caught up in the sensational aspect of what he did and his name and his title. Mm. But actually, how do we understand a man who's quite ordinary doing extraordinary things where actually the misogyny is commonplace in our society? And that misogyny is what we hear every day. And it's even in the double standard of men talking about prostitutes with contempt, but yet they are the paying customer. Right. 
Exactly. And as you say, Laura, and extremely, you know, astutely, the police gave him a defence because they could imagine some men hating those women enough to want to kill them just because of who they were, because they were unfortunate enough to be prostituted. Um, And, you know, I will absolutely say this until the day I die, women do not choose to go into prostitution. There might be... Exactly. It's not a career move. It's just outrageous that people talk about it as if it's a choice. That Any young girl says, when I grow up, I want to be a prostitute. Exactly. And they do not... They do not fit the profile of the happy hooker, of the very, very, very odd exception of women such as Belle de Jour, who sells sex to strangers in high-class hotel rooms to pay for her PhD, which is also damaging and exploitative. But that is not the profile of the millions of women in this hell. So those women were being put in prostitution by men. And remember, their lives before that would have been hellish. The boot camp, the training camp for prostitution is child sexual abuse, is witnessing domestic violence, is sexual exploitation. And then they're unfortunate enough to meet a pimp. And then that's where they are. And those women were treated with such contempt by the police that they forgot to rationalise this with, oh, but hang on a minute, who are the punters? As you've just said, who are the ones actually creating the demand and entrenching those women in there? Who are the ones causing so much distress with every sexual act within prostitution that these women go out and buy another bag of heroin, as it would have been then, the available drug for those women that that were around uh, during the, the Sutcliffe era? And how do we rationalise that? Where you could imagine that that's a reason, that that's a defence, when they're women as... As, as we have said repeatedly, not just about Sutcliffe's victims, but about all of the women who die in this way, die at the hands of men, some of whom are prostituted, that these women matter every bit as much, every bit as much as any woman, any upper class woman with a loving family who can pull strings in the investigation, who can appeal to the general public to pull out all the stops and find the killer of their of their loved one. So the assumption was that these women mattered to no one. And actually, I have my, my connections with, with the Sutcliffe case and era are numerous, like many women whose feminism was galvanised at the time of, of, of these, of the murders and the, the investigation. But one, one thing that really struck me, um, during this time was that so when I was 17 and I moved to Leeds I moved there because I was a lesbian Um, I wanted to meet feminists I was getting very interested in feminism I um, was just a working class uneducated girl so you know I, I didn't really know my way around and I moved there with my girlfriend who who worked in Leeds who was adopted she's black black mixed race adopted by a white family in in Yorkshire. And we moved to Leeds together and we were suffering the usual kind of racism. You know, the, 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 the National Front at the time were daubing our windows um, with just lesbian and, and racist kind of graffiti. They had quite a few choices to, to um, 
with which to target us. And my girlfriend said to me when we were watching the coverage of the 12th victim, she said, you know that I was in the next bed in the children's home in Hull with Helen Richter. And it's something, and she was a, a black mixed race girl as well, who ended up in prostitution and who was one of Suckliff's victims. And again, the mugshot of Helen Richter came up because she had been arrested for prostitution-related offences, which is an abhorrence on every level. And it, it broke my heart because clearly this could have been my girlfriend. That was the path that she was, she would have ended up on had she not been adopted aged four. And that had its problems, but it, it just brought it so close. And, and for my girlfriend, you know, she was just heartbroken with the memories of, she, I think she felt guilt that she got out and Helen Richter ended up a victim in the most notorious serial killer uh, case that we'd, we'd ever witnessed in our lifetime. And, you know, there were, there were connections across the board with women who knew a family member of one of the murder victims where she would come along to one of our feminist meetings because we were speaking and dealing specifically with male violence towards women because it's the only thing that unites all women, the threat and the reality of it. And it's the most urgent task and, and it's the most... I would say it's, it's the biggest impediment to our equality and liberation. Leeds, 1977, the Yorkshire at large. And this was a response to the message to women not to venture out alone after dark. It was the beginning of a movement over women's rights and how female victims of violence were dealt with. Al Garthwaite was on the first Reclaim the Night march. The reign of terror had changed lives, including her own. I'd walk from Woodhouse to Chapel Town, where I lived, uh, quite late at night. But after Wilma McCann was killed, um, I stopped doing that. Some women gave up evening jobs. Some women gave up going out to... to meet their friends. Some women um, gave up evening classes. This seemed to be encouraged by the police and some authorities as well, saying, oh, you must be careful, you mustn't go out. And that was partly what fueled our anger and rage, that there was, in effect, a curfew on women, but there wasn't on men. Three years later, a young Julie Bindle had just moved to Leeds. By now, the claimed 12 of his 13 victims. Going out for a drink with a girlfriend, she went her way, I carried on walking up a very badly lit hill in Headingley, and I was aware that I was being followed. And when I turned to look, I saw a dark man, dark-haired man with a beard, medium height, who stopped dead as I stopped. And as I then picked up pace, I... Uh, I heard him pick up pace. Julie Bindle ran away that night and described her would-be attacker to the police. The next day and close by, Leeds University student Jacqueline Hill was found murdered. Three months later, 
the image of the man who followed Julie Bindle, was arrested. She began a lifetime of campaigning on women's rights. Ended lives, destroyed lives and also changed lives. And I was one of those women whose life was changed. There was a definite turning point and instead of it being something that this rather strange, wild group of women did, it began to have an impact on the police, on the local authority, and it was the beginning of a whole change in the way people in authority looked at the issue of violence against women. I think a lot of progress has been made, but there is still a lot more that needs to be done. And campaigners believe that progress was born out of the strength and solidarity which began in the face of tragedy. Katie Oscroft, ITV News. So these women would come along who weren't feminist at all, who were uneducated working-class women in the main and would say to us, look, I don't know what you girls do, what you women's libbers do, but, you know, we've got, we've clearly got a huge problem with the police not giving a shit and we're worried that it'll be our daughter or our neighbour or our sister next. So we would talk to women who were this close to it because we were all this close to it. But what they would also say to us was that they themselves had experienced domestic violence. They themselves had been raped as, you know, I, I'd been raped uh, by, by a, a, a boyfriend before I moved uh, to Leeds. Other things had happened. I was flashed at, I was threatened. This is normal life, I'm afraid, for women, but we must never normalise it. So by the time these women came along to our to our feminist group asking for help, they knew they weren't going to get it from the police. They even were looking to feminists because we were there shouting outside Millbank police station and protesting through the streets in Reclaim the Night marches. And, and it was tragic seeing what women, j just the opening up. It was also very, very liberating to hear women speak about things that they had never spoken about publicly before. And it was all about male violence and the fear of male violence. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear about your own experience, Julie, but these are the experiences, our lived-in experiences that shape us. That's why we do what we do, because we've experienced these things. It's not the women of over there. Of course. The women out there, you know, as the magistrates would say to me, oh, these women, Laura, as if they're different from us women. And I kept saying, what, us? Because yeah. I'm a survivor too. You know, we've all had these experiences. We don't talk about them because mm -hmm. we're shamed into... Yeah. It's something we did. It's something that we brought upon ourselves. And so sharing our experience can be powerful, can't it? Yes, just, just to say that, um, that, that women built the movement on speaking out about what men do to us. Otherwise, we would just see it as isolated incidents or that we were to blame and it was some madman. I'm always really pleasantly surprised when I meet a woman who hasn't been raped or assaulted or flashed Me too. or groped. I think, oh, that's good. You know, that's good for you. <laughs> yeah. um, which, is, which is a horrendous state of affairs, but one that we know. We, I mean, there, there are some things, of course, that is really, I think is really important in any discussion about sexual violence to get across. One is, oh, I hate this idea and this trope that rape ruins your life. Murder ruins your life because it takes it away. Rape changes your life. Like all sorts of experiences change your life. And we grow and we move on. And many women 
use those experiences to look at the world and see it for what it is. And of course, feminism is the greatest antidote to the trauma of any sexual violence or threat of it and fear of it. Um, I'm not, I'm not one for, you know, I'm very, if anyone wants it, great, but I'm, I'm not a therapy head. My, my sanity, um, is because of feminism and making sense of the world under patriarchy, because that means we understand boys aren't born bad or pre-programmed to harm women. Men are not pre-programmed to rape. This is what they're given permission to do. And many of them are opportunistic or they get away with it once and they do it again. Of course, there are some extreme examples of Sutcliffe, but he has been grown in a society that actually grows Sutcliffe's. And so, so I think that what was very important about the huge realisation that I came to under this extreme climate and context in Leeds as a 17-year-old was, wow, this isn't anything to do with me. What I've witnessed in my life and what's happened to me is not because of me. These men aren't mad or weird. They're not perverts. They're, they're violent men who are given permission to do it. And actually, the most important thing is we can change this. We can stop this. And that's what the women's movement was for me right back then. And of course, remains the case today because there've been other Sutcliffe's and there'll be, there'll be more Sutcliffe's in the future. Absolutely. I, I agree with that. And looking back at Sutcliffe and the steps and decisions that he took and the people around him that enabled him, because it never happens in a vacuum, right to the point where he was a strange little kid at school who was being abused at home by his father, who was shy and awkward and found interactions with people difficult, to then being the guy in the pub with his, with his brother saying, look at that bitch over there, look at what she's wearing, look at her, C-U-N-T. Yep. All this language about women then when he's a grave digger, he's saying exactly the same. Female bodies, he's grabbing women magis a, a female mm. magistrate who had died and he grabbed her face and called her a bitch. Mm. An eyewitness account said, he said, you bitch, you're not going to be putting anyone away, are you, you bitch? Mm. C-U-N-T. Mm. That is the environment. He's, when you test things out and when you, other people turn a blind eye and don't challenge that, mm. he then starts to become emboldened. So mm. there are lots of opportunities where we look at behavior for there to be a challenge and that accountability of people holding each other to account when we hear that is so important and I think the grooming that happens for girls from birth I say of the messaging and the same for boys you know we have to change the messaging mm. and therefore these things are preventable right and I think it's in, I think it's also important, Julie, from I listened to you talk about, or actually I think it was one of your written articles where you talked about the fact that you list, you lived at the time um, probably a, a mile or so away from where Jacqueline Hill's body was found. So that brought it very close to you in, in proximity. And three weeks after Mo Lee was attacked and she survived, fortunately, mm. unfortunately Jacqueline Hill wasn't so lucky um, but you were followed late one night. Can you just describe what happened and whether you reported it or not? And if you did, what happened when you reported? I'd been out for a, a drink with my girlfriend and 
we were walking back up the hill in Headingley towards our room at the the YWCA. It was a kind of a hostel for the young women that had moved to the city and, and had and had no accommodation. And so it was fairly safe actually there because we were all women and we would all look out for each other. And of course, my girlfriend and I were very young, so the older ones would look out for us. And there were, you know, if you're going out, go out together or go meet your boyfriends, which clearly wasn't going to happen. And we'd we'd had an argument, a petty argument on the way back, and my girlfriend ran ahead of me. Um, and there was minimal street lighting, but there was a pub a few, just about 100 yards away, which, you know, was... Um, had had light um reflected on the the path so i looked behind me and i can't remember whether or not it was because i was aware of someone following me but you know what it's like we are trained to fear men at night walking behind us on an empty path i mean we just are and you know whether or not that's uh, a disproportionate reaction or not is beside the point because at that time we were all on high alert and I looked and I saw a man who was about my height. I'm five foot six. And he had bushy hair um, and dark beard. And I turned back round, started to walk on, expecting that what he might do, which some men had started to do, which was overtake and say, as they were overtaking, don't worry, love. I'm just walking past you. And it was the courteous men did that a lot in Leeds during those days. And he didn't. And I turned around again. And by this time I was very scared. And he said, hello, love. And his accent was clearly um, West Yorkshire. Um, And I started to run, but I ran towards the pub. And I don't know whether he followed, but when I looked around as I got to the door of the pub, when I felt completely safe, he'd gone. And actually an elderly man who I was pretty certain wasn't the serial killer. I mean, we're talking about in his 70s and that isn't the profile and that isn't how it was going to be happening. Walked me back to the hostel, gently telling me off at the time, you shouldn't be out on your own, young lady, you know what can happen. But he was, I appreciated him and and I got home safely. Now, the next day we had a meeting, a Women Against Violence Against Women meeting, the Wave group I was in. And my friend said to me, report it to the police because there's many men that are taking advantage of this context, of this situation, of the terror that women are under and are using it to enjoy themselves. They like scaring women. It makes them feel more powerful. They can then be the chivalrous man. Once he scared you, he can then reassure you. Or they're sex attackers, just like there are sex attackers. Who will put the fear of God in you and, you know, drag your frozen body um, into the bushes? And it may well not be this killer. So report him because they need to be vigilant against these men. But it could, who knows? It, It could be him. Who knows? So the women who'd survived, of course, as you know, had given a description to the police, which definitely was not dissimilar to the man I saw. But of course, there was one thing that I knew would be a barrier, and that was the accent. Because the police were looking for a Tynesider, 
And I was actually born just a few miles away from where this accent hailed from. We all knew it was a hoax. We, we all knew it. Um, but I sounded much more like the hoaxer than I did uh, as, as I do now, because I had a very strong Northeast accent. So I walked into Milgarth Police Station with a friend and spoke to the desk sergeant, and he was clearly bored and thinking maybe I was just kind of trying to waste their time. And I said, I'd like to report um, being followed last night, and I've got a description of the man, and I'd, I must have watched too much TV. I said, I'd like to make a photo fit. And he says, well, really, love? He says, and who was this man then? And I said, what he looked like and that I'd heard him speak. And what, what, what did he sound like? Did he sound like you? And I said, no, he was local. And he says, well, we're looking for a man that's, out, that's coming from your neck of the woods, love. So, But my friend who knew her way around, she was about 15 years older than me, she pushed and said, no, no, we'd like to speak to somebody. So reluctantly, I was shown through to an interview room. And of course, they drew in those days, they drew the photo fit, didn't they? So, so that's what, um, <clears throat> what I did. And the photo fit came out. And I remember it extremely clearly. It was a photograph of a man with a dark goatee beard and almost Afro hair, very dark hair, almost sculpted. Dark eyes, about my height. And um, they never followed up. I didn't ever hear from them again. It probably went in the bin. But of course, when Sutcliffe was arrested and during the trial and we saw the photo fits, my blood ran cold. It could have been him. I, I survived. If it was him, and or if it was some other sex attacker or killer, I survived. And in a sense, it doesn't matter if it was him. What matters was that the police didn't follow that up. And of course, they were led in part by the fact that this man was supposedly reassigned Jack. How terrifying. I mean, either way, like you say, it's just a very terrifying situation and when they're in the height of the investigation, because this was, when was it, 1980, 1979, 1980? It, it was days before Jacqueline Hill was murdered. So it was 1980. Yeah. And I so this is real heightened time oh, as well, when, when they should be very interested in women like you coming forward. That's exactly the type of woman case that I always appeal to. You want to know your near misses. And of course, in this series, there were many near misses that were never followed up on. Exactly. And the photo fits were just strikingly similar. And I would imagine that if your blood ran cold, if you had a visceral reaction, mm. your, your body, I would say from Basil van der Kolk's work, the body keeps the score. The body mm. remembers. We rationalize and we minimize things up here in the brain mm. with our trillion thoughts mm. and calculations a second but here in our gut mm. it knows immediately and we have visceral reactions for that mm. reason so more than likely given the geography given proximity given the description and given your visceral reaction it's you you were very very lucky i would say mm. uh, other women weren't quite so lucky and how frustrating for women who survived near misses to mm. be ignored when you've got living witnesses saying he's a local man, local accent. Mm. Mm. And, and I'm really curious as well as to, you know, you mentioned that you thought that it was a hoax, the whole Wearside mm. Jack 
nonsense, the letters and the tape. Why did you and others feel strongly that that, that was taking them down the wrong path? We knew it was a hoax because these men don't want to be caught. They don't want to be caught. Their pleasure doesn't come from taunting the police. They hate women and they want to harm and torture women. They, they may well gloat about not being caught, but we knew enough about violence against women and about violent men to know that this is the last thing that they would do. But we also knew that many men took sadistic pleasure from what Sutcliffe was doing and from the fact that the, um, the police had spectacularly failed. Maybe these men were, you know, on the fringes of criminality. Maybe they'd once been arrested for rape but got away with it. Maybe they just hated the police, whatever. But of course, we knew that down at Elland Road, Leeds Football Club, there were regularly chants by football supporters when the police tried to pen them in or stop them from taking their alcohol in or whatever, where they'd be chanting and taunting the police, 11-0, 11-0, 12-0, whatever the murder count was up to. So it was obvious. Oh my goodness. It was obvious that these men, some men took sadistic pleasure. Some men just liked seeing us frightened. I would get on buses and this happened to my friends as well. And maybe some, some man would hit on you and you'd tell him to get lost. And the next thing is you're too ugly even for the love or hope gets you or I'm the. Oh my God. And you would hear that when you walk past pubs at night, because of course we refused to have a curfew imposed upon us as women, as feminists. We refused. We said, no, we'll go out in groups. We'll go out with friends. We'll organize student, um, collective transport for the university women. We'll borrow each other's cars. We'll give each other lifts. We refuse to be hemmed in any more than male violence hems us in. Put a curfew on the men, not us. So we'd be walking past pubs. And of course, how dare we be out at night? And you'd get the usual, hey, love, you know, suck my cock. And when it was fuck off, it would be, what are you, a load of lesbians? So we'd gone from being fuckable to a disgrace being out on our own without the protection of men to, well, you're just lesbians. So it was just the context could not, you cannot remove the Sutcliffe investigation and the Sutcliffe murders and the press reporting from the wider context at the time across the country, but specifically in the northern towns and cities. So we knew that the hoaxer, we knew that the killer would not, put himself at risk to be caught and that this man who was sending the tapes and the letters was getting off on it probably had a hatred for the police and just saw it as a game that he could play because of course these women these women's lives so what worth nothing yeah i think you made some really valid points there uh, most serial killer cases i've worked on are serial perpetrators exactly as you say they don't want to be caught so that's why any appeal where you say, well, give yourself up, which in fact, Oldfield did that too. Come on, give yourself up. They don't want to. They want to carry on doing what they're doing. And therefore, they're misunderstanding the psychology of the perpetrators, the motivation and the misogyny. And we cannot understand this case without putting it back into its context at the time. And I mean, it's horrifying just listening to you say that. I have to say the football chanting I was aware of, but just on a day-to-day -day basis, the names and the fear that others were putting into young girls and women. 
Um, and the fact that radical feminism grew up with the, fuck you, we're not going to be the ones staying inside. It's the men who should be under curfew. And that is the symptom, actually, of all the problems, isn't it, where we're constantly telling girls and women what they should do to avoid being raped rather than dealing with the rapists and dealing with the killers. It's flipping the script and dealing with the problem. And I, I think it's staggering that they placed a, try to place a curfew on women and were arresting more Perfect. prostitutes rather than putting all their energy into really understanding who this killer was. And you know, putting together viable strategies. I still find it mind-blowing that they launch a £1 million press strategy to the letters and the tapes of the R-word and put that out there across tape, uh, TV, radio interviews and so on, creating this overwhelming uh, amount of information coming in when they hadn't even processed the information that they already had. And of course, we know he was in the system 11 mm. times and that they couldn't even deal with what they currently had. And then they invest all this money and they have this. And this is something I hear all the time, Julie, by the way, if I had a pound for every time I heard a, an officer say this, they say, we'll know him when we see him. And it's utter nonsense. They were expecting a monster. They, they were expecting a monster. They could not admit to themselves that ordinary men do this. And also, in terms of the Ellen Road horror, I want to think about boys at this stage. Boys going to football matches with their fathers, reading in the paper about these dirty prostitutes who've got themselves raped and murdered, which clearly is quite an incredible feat. But one police officer said that to me not that long ago, a woman who'd got herself raped, and he meant the type of women that were just treated as worthless in the early days of the, the Sutcliffe investigation. But what about those boys? Digesting all of this hatred towards women. And growing up being told that, well, for these killers, these madmen, they have to have a motive. Their motive must be, they must be psychotic and their motives must be because these prostitutes are littering the streets and the streets need to be cleaned up and this is understandable. And these are boys growing up where their empathy was being chipped at every single day by men that they looked up to who were their role models who took in all of this from the double act that was West Yorkshire Police and the press, particularly the local press. And that must have had quite a profound effect. I know I've spoken to numerous women, who've some of who have written books about aspects of growing up under the Sutcliffe era, um, or their survivors, or they have lost loved ones. And, you know, like you, with women who've been affected by male violence most profoundly, and they tell me the role that that case and other similar cases had in their lives and in their development as young women. But we also need to look at the, the impact it's had on the development of young men during that time. And it's, a, it's an interesting one. If you think about boys who, well, young men who were my age at the time, so 17 when it really, really hit me what was going on, or a little bit younger, they'll be in their 50s now. They might be a little bit older. We need to talk to those men. We need to get those men to tell us honestly how that shaped their views of women, in particular women in prostitution, and in particular what empathy is possible for women who are seen as the disposable women and how those views have shaped their lives in some way because we can't just look 
at how it shapes women's lives. Because we need men to take responsibility for their belief systems, where they then make the same mistakes when this kind of thing happens again. Let's have a look, for example, at Trevor Birdsell, Sutcliffe's best mate mm. at the time that he was going around the streets of Bradford, carrying a sock with rocks inside, paying for sex with these desperate women, some of whom were close to death, on heroin, on all kinds of health problems that prostitution inevitably brings, and battering them over the head, often to the point of serious injury for a laugh, while Birdsell sat in his car waiting for him to come back where they then had a laugh about what he'd just done and got away with it. I got another old tart, Sutcliffe would say. Because Birdsell knew all the way through that this could well be his mate, Peter. But he didn't go yep. to the police till the very, very end. And then, of course, we all know the scandal of the checkbook journalism around the case, where Birdsell was put up in a very, very uh, you know, posh hotel, paid a fortune, where he told his story to one of the tabloids. We need to look at men's role in this, who weren't necessarily directly attacking women at the time, who aren't rapists necessarily, who don't buy into this kind of level of misogyny, but who are the bystanders that allow for this to happen? And Birdsell is an extreme example because he was with Sutcliffe. He was aiding and abetting those very serious crimes. He should have actually served a lengthy prison sentence. Mm. And I bet multiple mm -hmm. times that happened. It's never just going to be once. And if he didn't speak up on the first attack in 1969, mm. the message to is right. carry on. Therefore, I would imagine there were multiple times where he was present. There's a suggestion he was present when, mm. when Emily Jackson mm. was targeted as yeah. well. And, and they're the soundings, I completely agree with you, where someone has the opportunity to challenge and say that's not acceptable when Carl, the brother, was mm. in the pub with him and he's saying all these derogatory things to women. Yeah. They're the opportunities. And it is about other mm. men standing up and showing mm -hmm. leadership and not distancing themselves, saying, oh, well, this guy is a lunatic and he did these horrific things to women as if it's right. something separate and something different, which is what happens. You know, and I want to talk about Emily Jackson in particular because she was a mother of three. She ran a business and she drove the, the van. The husband didn't drive the van. And when they fell upon hard times, he forced her in mm -hmm. to prostitution. And more importantly, the night she was attacked, he was sat in the pub just drinking mm -hmm. beer while she is working to make money, and I say working in inverted commas because it seemed that she was the centre of everything, holding the family together, the children, and yet that put her at risk and then she's killed and then she's blamed mm. in her death for doing everything she can to look after her children and right. protect her family. I mean, women just can't right. win. And that's what makes me really angry, that whilst he's sat in the pub, I mean, who the hell does he think he is sitting in the pub drinking while she's having to try and make money so that he, he doesn't go into mm. bankruptcy to keep a roof over the heads and to look after her three children? Right. And also Wilma McCann, who was forced into desperate situations in order to provide for her children. And he was a very troubled woman who'd had domestic violence and she was seen as, as worthless. And of course, we saw her mugshot from a very young woman. 
And it's, it's terrible the way that when we look today at the women in prostitution who are disregarded, who are seen as worthless, who are seen as disposable, that there are so many men who are willing to judge them when they are driving the demand and they don't say to their friends, it's not okay to joke about women in prostitution. It's not okay to pay for sex. It's actually not cool. Get yourself a real date. These women don't want to have sex with you. It's one-sided sexual pleasure. She's not consenting, but for the cash. We call that rape. That's what we usually call that scenario, rape. So we need to have a really honest discussion about why so many men are willing to pay for sex or normalize the practice or defend other men from doing it. And say things like, let's just legalize it. Let's make it safer for the girls. Meaning, let's state sanction it. Let the state become a pimp. And this is one aspect of the case, of course, and it's only one aspect. But I think if you want to look at how women are treated in any society, look at how women in prostitution are treated. Look at the normalization of the sex trade. Look at the men using arguments such as, as they've said to me when I've interviewed them on numerous occasions, well, if I couldn't have got my rocks off, I'd have wanted, I'd have had to have gone out and raped a real woman in inverted commas. They've actually said that to me. What they're saying to me, Andrea Dworkin and other radical feminists, I have never said all men are potential rapists, but they are saying that. The men, the punters are saying, we will have to rape a woman. In other words, you can't keep it in your pants. Now that is the most anti-feminist view of men. It's the most depressing view of men. Because one, it absolves them of all responsibility for their actions. Two, it means that we can never change them. They're just programmed to be rapists, which is not the case. Or why don't we just put them all in internment camps and give up and put them all on an island outside of Fiji and don't give them any boats? It's it's a terribly pessimistic view of men and one which I refuse to hold. Because men can keep it in their pants Men will not simultaneously combust if they can't get their rocks off with a woman who doesn't want sex with him. All of these tropes and myths about male sexuality and male violence as being inevitable or something we can never end, that has to stop now. That's why we've got feminism. That's why we do the work that we do. Because we know that there's nothing inevitable about it at all and that men need to be held to account But that means not just by the police and the Crown Prosecution Service and the judiciary and the jury members, but by all of society. And there's no point, in my view, dangling a carrot to men and saying, nice men don't beat their wives. Let's put you on a nice perpetrator programme where you can talk about your problems with your mother. Or, you know, don't you want to actually have better relationships? No, what we need to do is say to them, this is your responsibility, mate. And if you do this, you will be held to account just like if you punched a police officer in the face in a pub. So that's what we need to do. And sod all of this. We got to go into schools and we got to tell the boys about healthy relationships. Yeah, well, of course, that too. But what's the point of that? Is they know there's no sanctions if they do whatever they wish to women and girls. What is the point? If somebody said to me, if I was desperately hungry and poor, and needing to feed my kids during COVID, and I was really good at shoplifting. And somebody said to me, you know that it's not nice to shoplift. 
And also it means that people pay more for their goods because of what you're doing. And well, I'd say, well, to hell with it. So bloody what? But if they said to me, we're CCTV'd up, we've got security guards all over the place, and I'm afraid you are going to be in court and probably reported in the papers. If you do this, if you're caught doing it, I probably wouldn't shoplift again. So we need that combination of public awareness and education at a very deep level and funded, of course, by the government. But we also need, additionally to that, sanctions. If we look at at prevention of male violence in a similar way, although far more complex, but in a similar way to stopping smoking in public buildings, smacking your children, drink driving, driving without a seatbelt. You can see how that combination of public education and awareness coupled with legislation for deterrence works. And that's where we need to be going with violence against women, not putting them on silly namby-pamby courses that get them to talk about their feelings and all the rest of it. I mean, let them do that in counselling, of course. Additionally, to the sanctions that we need to impose. And I'm anti-prison unless it's absolutely essential. Well, some of these guys, it is actually absolutely essential. And is one of those men that it would be essential for. But absolutely, what, what you say, I couldn't nod my head even more than I was. The fear of a consequence and accountability is the only thing that creates behavioral mm-hmm. change. And people ask me this all the time. And having spoken to perpetrators, sat in rooms with perpetrators, asked them questions. Why did you do what you did? Because yes. I could. Because I can. It's a really simple answer that most of them give. So you have to take their power and their privilege away via accountability. And so for domestic violence perpetrators, lengthy prison sentences really are the most effective for domestic violence perpetrators than any other type of perpetrator because it takes their privilege away, it takes their entitlement away, it strips them down to the basics. They don't like it, they don't want to go back. (laughs) Therefore, if they don't like to go back, they're going to change their behaviour. And that's what they do. So I think it's so important that people get that because I agree. It's not about putting people on programs Mm -hmm. or in counselling, joint mediation, (laughs) all this stuff that people are saying right now all across the globe in America Mm. and Australia. I I always hear, as, as you do, every four years we get into the whole restorative justice nonsense. Most of these men know what they're doing. They get, they derive pleasure and power from doing what they're doing. So you have to take that pleasure and power away from them. And I think that serial perpetration piece, you know, when we look at the 1969 offence is very instructive. The police go and talk to him. They tell him she's not going to press charges, which is a victim of domestic violence as well. And he's just told off and that's it. And within weeks, he's found hiding in bushes with a hammer a knife that he had secreted in the police van's mud guard on search, but he was found with a hammer and an officer decides to arrest him for going acquit for theft rather than thinking, hang on, weeks before he was spoken to. Because these things were on the crime report. And as you know, Judy, back in the day, it relied very much on community policing and intelligence and Police knew their patches. They knew what was going on and who was doing what to whom, much more than they do present day, I would argue. 
So they had these opportunities. In fact, I found seven near misses, and I'm still finding them in this case before he attacked Wilma McCann. I found at least seven women who survived. And these were women who had come forward and reported. And yet, in everyone says Wilma McCann was the mm-hmm. first victim mm-hmm. in 1975, which we all know there's no way that's the first time that he offends. It might be the first time that he kills. And of course, Wilma McCann is described by everybody as being yeah. a prostitute, this 28-year-old divorcee, and the way she's characterized in the media um, is horrific. And that's stayed with the family yes. ever since. And I've spoken with Richard McCann, who requested an apology from West Yorkshire Police for calling his mother a prostitute. She had no previous convictions, and yet they still called her a prostitute. And that has stuck. Everything I'm seeing now in 2020, when journalists write about her, they use the mugshot that was taken of her at 18 when she shoplifted, and they talk about her as being a prostitute. And Richard actually said to me, he made a very good point. He said, even if my mum did go out and make money, she did it to for us kids. It's what she had to do. It's what you all made her do to look after us. That's an indictment on society. How dare you then use that against her when you created this situation and she was a victim of domestic violence? And this is how every single aspect of male violence towards girls and into womanhood is connected. They are not siloed. They are not separated. They shouldn't be separated. As I say, the prostituted woman will have witnessed domestic violence, experienced it. She's been sexually exploited. She possibly to probably will have been sexually assaulted or raped in childhood. We can see that men who commit acts of domestic violence are also those abusing their children, that they are also raping adult women, that we can't look at these men as separate categories, as we learned through the Jimmy Savile case, who was abusing girls, boys, adult women and corpses. We have to look at the fact that offending escalates if nobody stigmatises this in general, rather than stigmatising the victims, but stigmatising the behaviour from men, or stops them, or better still, prevents them from doing it at all. And that's the world that I know that we can see. There's nothing inevitable about male violence, but everybody has a role to play in this. Everybody. And we have to look at it at root and branch. Misogyny is the driver. Women's inequality, the fact that we're under patriarchy and are constrained in the ways that we are. The global picture on violence against women from forced marriage to FGM, to domestic abuse, to prostitution and trafficking, the lot. It's all connected and it's all about men's entitlement. And if we were, if patriarchy dissolved tomorrow and women were truly equal, there would be no sexual violence. It is a cause and a consequence of women's oppression and male dominance. And it can end and it has to end. My goodness, Julie, it's been fascinating talking to you. you. You have such a wealth and depth of knowledge but also you were living through this at the time. And it's so important we do learn these lessons. They're just as relevant today as what they were back then. So I just want to thank you so much for your time and for speaking to me so honestly. And uh, I know I have still have many more questions, so we'll no doubt be speaking again at some point. So thank you. I'd like to thank you, Laura, uh, for all of your work and your commitment. Thank you, Julie. What an incredible interview, hey? So much learning in there. And I could have talked to Julie for hours. So I really hope you enjoyed our conversation. 
You know, I do believe that Julie was a near miss to P.S. And thank goodness she trusted her instincts when she noticed him and took action. Now, interestingly, when I look at a picture of Jacqueline Hill at the time and compare it to a picture of Julie at the time, they looked very similar. And the fact that it was in close proximity and the night before Jacqueline was attacked and killed and Julie having a visceral reaction when she saw a photo of P.S., I believe that this was a near miss. And thank goodness she survived by following her instincts and taking action. And there are more cases that I'll be analysing that may well have been committed by P.S., as I've now concluded my analysis of the A1 offences... And also, Judy talked about Trevor Birdsall and the trial, and I will be talking about that in a future episode. So let me know what resonated with you about this episode in particular. Hit me up on social media, and please share the episodes with your sons, your daughters, your mothers, your fathers, your best friends, your colleagues, with everyone, because I really feel everyone should listen to these episodes. And I really hope you'll join me back in The Intelligent Self for part nine of The Forgotten Victims. Until then, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts. And here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. The first is a huge thank you to all of you, my lovely listeners and crime analysts, for tuning in every week. The second is an ask. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review on whichever platform you listen to me on. It really helps others find me and helps with the ratings. So thank you, thank you. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Tim Hansen at Half Ogre Studios. Cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrude.